Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Rainbow Mormon Podcast. This is episode four. The date is March 7th, 2019. My name is Danny Caldwell, and I am your host for the show. So I have been out for a little while. Uh, I got sick, so I apologize that there's been such a delay, and I'm kind of freaking out because there is so much to cover. Uh, there's been a lot that's been going on, and the next few episodes I want to cover and talk about conversion therapy. So the first episode, I kind of want to talk about what conversion therapy is and what what that entails, kind of the history of it. And then I want to move into uh, how it has um, presented itself in the church over the years. From there, I want to start, I want to share with you my personal experience of conversion therapy, having been through that. And then from, from there, talk about some of the current stuff that's going on. This has been in the news a lot, especially here in Utah. There's been a There was a pretty prominent uh, conversion therapist in Utah, LDS, um, who has recently come out as gay and decided that he's gotten a divorce from his wife and that he's now uh, dating men. And and then also in the Utah legislature, there has been a bill um, that they've been trying to pass that would limit the ability for therapists to practice conversion therapy. And that bill was actually pretty drastically changed um, in a way that is not helpful for the LGBTQ community. So uh, we'll talk about that stuff last. But to get started, let's, um, let's jump in and talk about conversion therapy. Some of you might be wondering, what is conversion therapy? This might be the, the first you're hearing about that. So conversion therapy is kind of a, an umbrella term which basically means what uh, type of therapy that is, the goal of the therapy is to change someone's sexual orientation. Basically to change someone from gay to straight. So the uh, state of Utah has kind of changed that definition, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And that is highly influenced by uh, the LDS church. But first off, let's just talk about um, conversion therapy and what it is. I know for a lot of people who are not from a really conservative area, that whole idea of even thinking that someone would change their sexual orientation is a, a crazy and absurd thought. That it's not even something that would cross your mind. But that is something that is very common. It's very, very common for me as a therapist. I have a... Um, an individual, a young man, come in, open up to me, tell me that he is gay, and you know we work towards him being able to open up to his parents. When he finally does, it's not uncommon that the first response from the parents is, you know what, we can fix this. There's therapy that can that can fix this or get rid of it. So that that idea is, is still very very prominent, although the idea of conversion therapy has been discredited over and over and over again. Uh, so wh- where did this idea come from? If we kind of look at the the history, pretty much all therapy, therapeutic techniques and ideas can be traced back to Sigmund Freud. And actually, Sigmund Freud was not, his stuff has been used to justify this, but his he did not see homosexuality as a, a problem or a mental disorder. Uh, he actually was he thought that it could possibly maybe be removed through hypnotic suggestion, and he was somewhat influenced by Eugene Steinick, uh, uh, Viennese um, endocrinologist, who 
transplanted the testicles from straight men into gay men in the attempts to change their sexual orientation. What we found that you know over time this didn't work. Um, you know bodies rejected those those transplants and caused all kinds of of problems. Freud's main thought about this was um, from a paper about female homosexuality um, in 1920, and it was entitled The Psychogenesis of a Case of Homosexuality in a Woman, where he talked about analyzing a woman who had come into therapy because her parents were concerned that she was a lesbian, and her father wanted this to be changed. And Freud saw this as that it's not likely to change. He didn't see it as something that was likely to change. He saw sexual orientation as something that was not likely to be reversed or changed, mainly because he saw it as it's not an illness um, or a neurotic um, problem. And he, he saw that at the best, we could maybe make heterosexual feelings a possibility, but we would not get rid of the homosexual feelings. And it was, he saw like gay people didn't often they weren't even, even if they were able to develop some heterosexual attraction, they never were able to see that as providing them the same kind of satisfaction as homosexual sex would. So there was in 1935 a woman who wrote to Freud wanting her son treated for homosexuality, and he responded to this woman in the following letter, which kind of gives an idea of what he was thinking about it. And he said in this letter, um, I gather from your letter that your son is a homosexual. It is nothing to be ashamed of no vice, no degradation. It cannot be classified as an illness. We consider it to be a variation of the sexual function produced by a certain arrest of sexual development. By asking me if I can help your son, uh, you mean, I suppose, if I can abolish homosexuality and make normal heterosexuality take its place. The answer is, in a general way, we cannot promise to achieve it. So really, he was he didn't see it as a problem. While he thought that maybe there was some possibility of changing it, he did see it as kind of a derailment from what from normal development, but didn't see it as a problem a problem, but just a variation of sexuality, and didn't see the need to to change it. Now his daughter, um, Freud's daughter Anna Freud, um, she became a pretty influential psychoanalytic theorist in the UK, and in like the 1940s, 1950s. And she had some additional thoughts on it. Without getting into a lot of the detail, because it gets kind of complicated and kind of weird, uh, she basically saw it as there was a problem in the identification of a an individual with the same-sex parent, which she saw, without getting into tons of detail, it had to do with castration anxiety, which was a principle of, of Freud's. But that through resolving some of these repressed feelings that um, someone would then develop some uh, would develop a what she called a normal heterosexual um, attraction. These ideas continued over time. People trying to explain this, um, it just didn't make sense to people. And you hear this a lot from straight individuals. I just don't understand it. It's not natural. And I think for a, as I've said in other podcasts, for a straight person, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But you have to understand for a homosexual person, um, straight sex doesn't make sense. It just doesn't doesn't feel right. It doesn't make sense to them why someone would want that. So there's, there's people kept trying over time. Melanie Klein was another theorist. She was known for her book, The Psychoanalysis of Children. She was really one of the first um, child psychologists. 
um, she saw problems with the um, Freudian Oedipus complex. And in the Oedipal complex um, comes from the, the story of Oedipus Rex, uh, where he kills his father accidentally because of her relationship with his mother. It's a big, complicated, weird, incestual story. But the idea in Freudian psychoanalysis is that everyone goes through, all men go through the Oedipus complex. There's also a female Oedipus complex, which is a little bit different, but for men it's we go through this Oedipus complex in which we fall in love with our mothers and therefore see our fathers as an obstacle to that, because we're both fighting for the same love, so we begin to hate our father. But then realizing that in order to have the mother, I need to identify with my father, learn from him so that I can eventually have the mother and be able to please her in the way that he pleases her. Melanie Klein saw this as that homosexuality is an unresolved Oedipus complex in where the identification with the father does not happen, so the child never is able to um, see how they can satisfy the mother in that way. So not being able to um, have that se those sexual feelings towards towards their mother, but still wanting to, still needing to learn from the father, their sexual attraction goes towards uh, then the father. So in the later 20th century, we saw therapy and those kinds of things started to become much more popular. We saw an upsurge in people trying to uh, cure homosexuality. And we saw a lot, of, especially in the 70s, 60s and 70s, into the 80s, we saw a lot of focus on uh, behavioral therapy. Um, if you think of like Pavlov's dogs, um, conditioning someone to uh, feel a certain way towards a certain thing. We're going to condition someone to either um, desire something or to reject something. So there were a lot of things that were done where they would cause... Um, they would show an individual, a homosexual individual, homosexual pornography while giving them a drug that would cause them to vomit. Um, therefore, the idea was that we're going to pair the unpleasant experience of vomiting with homosexual um, sex. Um, another thing that was tried was electroshock therapy. Um, originally, this was done that they would, once again, show gay pornography, um, but they would attach a an instrument to the penis that would measure if the person was starting to become aroused. If they started to become aroused, it would deliver a, an electric shock to their forearm. And therefore, the idea is that we're going to condition them to not enjoy homosexual feelings. Eventually, some of that even went to attaching the electroshock to, directly to the genitals. Pretty, um, pretty barbaric things. And what we found is that this didn't change people's sexual orientation. It caused extreme depression, um, suicidality, and for some even caused an intense, rather than just a, you know, a change in sexual orientation, it caused an extreme fear and terror around members of the same sex. So it caused a lot of emotional problems. Uh, Brigham Young University, the, um, the university run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was one of the kind of leading schools in doing a lot of this electroshock therapy to cure homosexuality. There was a big push by the church to fix this. That people who had this, it was unnatural and therefore we could fix this. And while this was being done a lot, um, I mean, Harvard University did some of this. Um, BYU did it a lot longer than everybody else. Um, homosexuality was taken out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders in the late 1970s. And 
these kinds of studies continued at BYU until, and treatments continued until the mid, early mid um, 1980s. So they were definitely behind the times on that. Then in the 19, early 1990s, we see another resurgence of people trying to cure this. And we saw a big kind of movement um, started in, primarily by a man named Joseph Nicolosi, who had a significant role in developing a lot of what we consider conversion therapy now. He started this in the 1990s. Um, he published a book called The Reparative Therapy of Male Homosexuality. He had several other books. Shame and Attachment Loss was his last book that he he published. He also had another book uh, called A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. And this kind of took that Freudian idea of the Oedipal complex and basically kind of took a lot of the Freudian language out of it, but was still following that same idea. And it followed the idea that every individual, every child that's born, is automatically attached to the mother. Male or female, we're born, that's the, the parent that we're more attached to because we've um, been carried by the mother, the mother's the one that feeds us, we feel that connection to her. And you know, boys have to make a shift to identifying to the father in order to basically learn how to be a man. Um, and this, in from this theory, explains why we see more gay men than uh, gay women. And it has to do with women are already attached to the same-sex parent, and so they don't have to shift, but boys have to make that shift, and so it's more likely that they don't make the shift. The idea with male homosexuality is that they, for whatever reason, it could be that father was really scary, bad temper, father was absent, either um, completely or emotionally absent, that he worked a lot, wasn't around, but for whatever reason, the child didn't start identifying with the father. And they cite that a lot of times, about the time when gender development starts, is usually around the age of two or three, about three years old, kids can't pretty much start to feel I'm either a boy or I'm a girl. A lot of times you see little boys kind of shift to the father or another male role model in trying to be more like them. You know, they watch dad shaving, they want to try, and you see them wanting that identification with the father. And so this theory says that for whatever reason, they don't make that shift. Maybe it's because dad's scary, he's not around, but they just stay close to mom. So they really identify with the woman, uh, with the mother, they feel comfortable with that. And so then they start into school. In school, there's a lot of division in gender in elementary school. You know, kind of the girls have cooties, boys are gross, that kind of thing. And girls stay with girls, boys stay with boys. They're not, um, they don't mix a lot. But this boy who is, has always identified with women, he feels more comfortable with the girls. Um, but yet he watches the boys thinking, you know, I want to play with them, but I don't really know how. No one's ever really taught me. So he kind of is either kind of plays the girls where he feels comfortable or he's kind of a loner that sits by himself. Then we move into puberty and the idea from this theory of what uh, kind of creates our attraction is that we're drawn to what is foreign to us. It's the exotic becomes erotic uh, theory. Typically men during those elementary school years become very familiar and comfortable with other little boys. When puberty hits suddenly they start noticing girls and think huh guys are kind of boring. What are girls all about? I want to know, understand that. And that's where their sexual attraction goes. But for the boy who has identified with the girls, he still is trying to figure out the boys that he's never been able to 
be able to connect with. Girls are boring to him, so when puberty hits, his sexual attraction goes towards the boys. So the idea of reparative therapy is that we need to repair this disconnect from um, my masculinity and identification with boys. And so a lot of it is Joseph Nicolosi was hardcore that it's always about the relationship with the father. If a boy is homosexual, it's because he has a bad relationship with his father. And that he needs to repair that relationship with the father. He needs to be more masculine, so he needs to do more stereotypical stereotypically masculine things, um, needs to, you know, abandon feminine hobbies, needs to get involved in sports, those kinds of things, and needs to stop feeling that familiarity with, uh, with women. And as he does that, starts to feel more identified with men, he will start to automatically feel um, less attraction to them because he understands them now and he'll start feeling attraction to that which is different. So that is kind of the latest kind of idea of conversion therapy. It's softened a little bit. That idea has been pretty criticized. And so you see people pulling away from that, but there still is a major push of, you know, we're not going to try to change your sexual orientation. We don't know that that can happen, but you can control your behavior. So by doing certain things, you'll have less desire to connect with men. If you have good relationships with men, you won't want to connect with men sexually as much, and you might start to increase your heterosexuality. And while you might not be able to get rid of it totally, maybe you can. But there's, that's kind of where things are. There's still a lot of people that ascribe to that idea that we need to be more masculine, and that will help us not be gay. With women, it's um, very similar except um, for whatever reason, maybe they don't feel, once again, go to infancy, they connect with mom, but for whatever reason, mom is absent, maybe mom's really sick, can't connect with her, dad is the caregiver, maybe the girl is a little more athletic, dad's into sports, so she connects with him, doesn't connect as well with mother. So, once again, goes to elementary school, she doesn't feel like she connects with the girls, so she connects with the boys, puberty hits, and she finds herself attracted to the women, rather than the men. So, in a nutshell, that's kind of uh, the ideas around conversion therapy or reparative therapy. It has lots of names. Reparative therapy is what Joseph Nicolosi did. That term has received a lot of bad kind of energy around it. So the clinic that he started, he since has passed away. His son, Joe Nicolosi, now runs it. Um, they now call it reintegrative therapy. But you hear it called, I mean, there's reparative therapy, reintegrative therapy, conversion therapy, ex-gay therapy, um, SOCE, which stands for um, sexual orientation change efforts. Um, there are lots of names that have been given this, but it's all the same idea of trying to get rid of homosexual feelings. If you go to Joseph Nicolosi's, his clinic, their website, like the front page says, if gay doesn't define you, you don't have to be gay. Uh, offering psychological services to men and women whose same-sex attraction doesn't define them. So it's a, a very kind of negative spin on what someone might be, be experiencing. So where does the LDS Church play into all this? So for a long time, the LDS Church has had a pretty negative attitude about homosexuality, which wasn't uncommon in Christian religions for a long time. Some of where this started, so the LDS Church became 
a pretty big uh, proponent of change therapy. As I mentioned earlier, they did a lot of experiments and tests and types of therapy in order to um, change someone's sexual orientation at BYU during the 70s. But let me share something with you. This is, I think, where a lot of this attitude comes. There wasn't a whole lot said about homosexuality until uh, the 1970s. Um, I guess it was 1969. There was a book that was published, which is called The Miracle of Forgiveness. Uh, if you're Mormon, you have probably heard of this book. It is a very popular book, still available at Deseret Book, which is a LDS um, church-owned bookstore. This book is very often assigned by bishops to individuals who are trying to repent for something, but especially for those who are homosexual. But in this uh, book, chapter six is called A Crime Against Nature. And this chapter is about homosexuality. And I'm actually going to at some point do a whole podcast on this chapter because it's pretty disturbing and pretty upsetting, the things that are are said. Pretty awful stuff. But um, this book was written by Spencer W. Kimball, who is a prophet. As I said, this is still an available book. In my opinion, it should have been taken out of print a long time ago. It's a pretty awful, shaming, uh, very negative, unloving book. It comes from a very hellfire damnation kind of perspective. In this chapter, one of the sections is called Curable and Forgivable with Effort. And so I'm just going to read some of this to you and give you some of my thoughts. So in this section it says, After consideration of the evil aspects, the ugliness and prevalence of the evil of homosexuality, the glorious thing to remember is that it is curable and forgivable. The Lord has promised that all sins can be forgiven, except certain ones enumerated, and this evil was not among those named. Thus it is forgivable, if totally abandoned, and if the repentance is sincere and absolute. Certainly it can be overcome. For there are numerous happy people who were once involved in its clutches, who have since completely transformed their lives. Therefore, to those who say that this practice or any other evil is incurable, I respond, how can you say the door cannot be opened until your knuckles are bloody, till your head is bruised, till your muscles are sore? It can be done. Uh, this just makes me angry. Uh, for a lot of reasons. it The part saying where there are numerous happy people who were once involved with it who are now not, he references a couple people later, and I would like to see these numerous people. From what I've seen, there's lots of people who say that they've overcome it because that's what's expected, but they still battle with it every day of their lives. They may not be acting you know, in a homosexual relationship, but they are tortured. Uh, trying to deal with this, uh, trying to stay in a heterosexual marriage, yet they're feeling this way. There's a lot of difficulty involved there. So to say that these people have just abandoned it and they're totally fine and they're heterosexual now, that's not true. There are a lot of people who say that they are, that they don't have these feelings anymore. Many of those people end up years later saying, you know what, I it's not actually gone. They end up divorced. They end up leaving their, their marriage. So what he's saying there that this is you know very common for people to abandon this that's not true uh, that's a lie not based in any kind of actual research or evidence 
The other place where he says is, how can you say the door cannot be opened unless your knuckles are bloody, till your head is bruised, till your muscles are sore? It can be done. Okay, that just pisses me off. Because I've seen so many people sitting in my office, myself included, where they have done everything they can possibly do. They have cried and cried themselves to sleep at night. They have prayed and prayed. They have smashed computers because they can't stop um, you know looking at pornography they've you know left friendships they have I've seen people that have you know cut themselves to try to punish themselves for doing it people who just absolutely hate themselves they dive full head into religious stuff they obsessively study the scriptures they do everything right they go to the temple every day and yet they can't get over it um, so I don't know what the hell he's talking about till your knuckles are bloody, till your head is bruised. What that means, because I've seen people give their all and it doesn't go away. And I think that's really easy for somebody who is not gay to say, oh yeah, it's super easy. Don't say it can't be done. Okay, you haven't been through that. And I don't think you have any right to say that somebody just isn't trying hard enough unless you've been through that torture of trying to not be gay when you are. Uh, that is a pretty horrible and awful thing that is said here and really, really damaging. All it says is if you're feeling this way, it's because you're not trying hard enough. And so people will read this and they try harder and harder. That still doesn't go away. They think that they're just not capable. They feel hopeless. They commit suicide. Um, this is damaging, damaging material. And he goes on later in this section and says, Accordingly, some totally conquer homosexuality in a few months. Others linger, linger on with less power and require more time to make the total comeback. The cure is as permanent as the individual makes it. And like the cure for alcoholism, is subject to continued vigilance. So once again saying that homosexuality is a derailment from what the person was that they were heterosexual they've derailed from that and they can come back to that okay once again bullcrap um, most people who are gay have felt that way they've never felt heterosexual so to say that this is a comeback it's not they've never experienced that and to compare it to something like alcoholism this is not a mental disorder alcoholism is a mental disorder homosexuality is not and once again, just saying that if you try hard enough, then you know, you can do it. And if you can't, then it's because you're not trying hard enough. Uh, once again, very damaging language. So he um, later on in this uh, chapter, there's a section called No Turning Back, where Spencer W. Kimball says, It's imperative that when one has once put his feet on the path to recovery and mastery, there must be no turning back. No man, said the Savior, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So basically you have to turn away from this, abandon all feelings that are very natural to you. This is like telling a straight person, you just need to ignore any attraction you have and never look at it. Because if you do, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. This person is trying so hard to try to follow the church teachings and to tell them, oh, if you if you look back at all, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's that's basically saying you're not wanted here. The church sits there and says, oh yeah, there's a place for gay people in the church. Not with this kind of rhetoric. No, there's not. You're saying you're not wanted here. And it pisses me off because there are so many people, 
especially teens that are hurting because of this crap. And there are people who uh, still spout this stuff. There's a lot of people that say, you know, miracle forgiveness, that's a little out there. But it's still sold in the church bookstore. And there are bishops that still ask people to read this. And there are still people who read this and then spout that information. Uh, it's not helpful. It's really damaging. Later in that section, in the No Turning Back, he says, The repenting one must avoid every person, place, thing, or situation which could bring reminders of the sordid past. He must avoid pornography in any form, any stories or pictures or records which stimulate the passions. He should part with company, the prince of this world, the devil, and all associates. He should make new friends, establish new locations, and begin a totally new life. Saying that... Don't be you. Abandon yourself and abandon all your friends. Abandon everything that feels natural and normal to you, and that's what's going to make you happy. Okay, I've never seen anyone happy doing that because it isn't happiness. So this is kind of the start. There's a lot more there. I'm not going to go into all of it. Like I said, I'm going to do a whole podcast on that chapter in that book at some point. Uh, but from that, there have been lots of therapists that have sprung up. The church is saying this can change. And so we need to, uh, how do we do that? We have to work through these things. So um, not too long ago, you actually, I just checked. You can't buy this, at least on Deseret Book online. But there was a book um, that came out. I bought it there like six years ago, probably. Um, and it was called Resolving Homosexual Problems, A Guide for LDS Men by Jason Park uh, with a forward by uh, Dean Bird. Both of them have been well known in the reparative therapy, conversion therapy within the LDS church. But from this, there's um, a lot of uh, starting to the therapy of how people can overcome homosexuality. And like I said, this was sold in the church bookstore up until, I don't know when they stopped, but up until recently. And this was book that a lot of therapists based their, Elias therapists based their opinions on homosexuality from. So this book was originally published in 2006, so it's not that old of a book. But it, I think it used a lot of this attitude that coming from the prophet, Swinshaw W. Kimball said this can be cured. So if it can be cured, how do we do that? That seems like something a therapist should be involved in. So. They went to, kind of latched on to all this um, conversion therapy stuff. Um, we talked about Joseph Nicolosi and his uh, teachings on it. But I won't go through the whole book, but there's a few things I want to point out. In chapter one, is called, What is Homosexuality? And just the first sentence of the description, it says, Homosexual problems include erotic thoughts, feelings, and behaviors directed towards the same sex or same gender. Uh, first of all, it drives me nuts how they use gender and sex interchangeably all through the LDS literature around the stuff. Sex and gender are two different things. Same sex attraction and same gender attraction, not the same thing, but yet they use them interchangeably. But the thing that really bothers me here is they say homosexual problems. Okay, right there from the first sentence, they're saying you have a problem. You're messed up. Okay, that's, that's hurtful because this is something that is core to who this person is. Um, shortly after that, it says, these attractions can be a major source of frustration because in spite of your best efforts to get rid of them, you continue to have compelling sexual thoughts towards other men. These inner attractions may be intense and may consume a great deal of your thoughts and energy. 
if the sexual attractions are not resolved, they can grow into obsessions that interfere with your ability to function at work and at home, and can be destructive spiritually. Homosexual attractions are usually more compelling than attractions toward the opposite sex because they spring from more than sexual desires. They are attempts to fill unmet emotional and social needs. So there they're saying that, once again, this is a problem that comes from you don't connect with people well enough, that you've got to resolve this or this is going to consume your life. And the truth is, yeah, it consumes the person's life when they sit there and suppress it and suppress it and suppress it. And it keeps bursting out and they just are desperate for trying to try to solve this. And that you know, we can fix this because this isn't a real attraction. This is just an attempt to fill an unmet emotional and social need. Going on in this, they have a section called homosexual homosexuality is symptomatic of other problems. And they say one of the, the reasons homosexual problems are difficult to address is they are not the real problem. Focusing too much on homosexual problems can actually be misleading, since they are symptoms of deeper struggles such as rejection, envy, abuse, self-perception, gender identity, distrust, or fear. Then they say once you identify the causes of your painful hunger, you can learn ways to feed the hunger in appropriate, non-sexual ways. Once you resolve the underlying problems, you will find that homosexual problems resolve themselves. Once again, over and over, they say homosexual problems, homosexual problems. Um, they use the word people struggling with homosexuality. A lot of times the reason people find this a problem and they struggle with it is because everyone's telling them it's wrong and you shouldn't feel this way. But we see that a lot of times these things, uh, rejection, envy, abuse, uh, self-perception, gender identity problems, distrust or fear, these aren't at the root. A lot of gay men don't have these things and a lot of straight people do. Gay people have these but they're normal human experiences. You know, and there's a lot of people who have the attitude that like people with who are gay have been sexually abused. Not true. Um, there's a small percentage who have, just like in the regular population. Um, it's slightly more in the homosexual population, but it's not a significant cause of homosexuality. It can't be linked to that. Now, in Miracle of Forgiveness that I quoted earlier, it does say that thoughts are a sin. Later the church has said that having these feelings or these thoughts are not the sin but acting on them is a sin. And they address that in this book that I'm addressing right now. Um, so after they talk about that they say overcome thoughts and behaviors. And they have a bunch of quotes from uh, different uh, apostles and prophets. So they have a quote in here from Gordon B. Hinckley where he said our hearts reach out to those who struggle with feelings of affinity for the same gender. We remember you before the Lord. We sympathize with you. We regard you as our brothers and our sisters. However, we cannot condone immoral practices on your part any more than we can condone immoral practices on the part of others. Uh, then Dallin H. Oaks, who is currently in the first presidency of the LDS Church, he speaks out a lot against homosexuality. These are some of his uh, statements. The struggles of those who are troubled by same-sex attraction are not unique. They are many kinds of temptations, sexual and otherwise. The duty to resist sin applies to all of them. Church leaders are sometimes asked whether there is any place in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for persons with homosexual or lesbian susceptibilities or feelings. Of course there is. The degree of difficulty and the pattern necessary to forego behavior and to control thoughts will be different with different individuals, but the message of hope 
and the hand of fellowship offered by the church is the same for all who strive. Elder Oaks further explained that all should understand that persons and their family members struggling with the burden of same-sex attraction are in special need of love and encouragement. That is a clear responsibility of church members who have signified by covenant their willingness to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill a law of Christ. There's just a lot of negativity. Uh, they call it, throughout both of those quotes, those who struggle. They make it this very depressing thing. And the truth is, if people aren't told that it's wrong or it's bad or it's depressing, they're usually okay with it. They're usually very happy being gay. Most people, once they can let go of feeling like this is a struggle, they're very happy and content with their sexuality. You know, there's this idea that, you know, we accept you, we love you. The truth is, and you hear people, LDS people say this all the time. Yes, gay people are welcome in our church. Um, gay people are welcome in the church if they don't act on their attractions. Um, if they're married, they're going to get to a same-sex partner. They're going to be excommunicated. They can come to church. They can't participate in most of what goes on there. And in order to be baptized, a gay person would have to completely abandon their sexuality. They would have to, if they were married to same-sex partner, they would be have to divorce. That doesn't sound like you're welcome here. That sounds like you're welcome and you're loved here with a lot of conditions. And personally, I don't want to be somewhere where there's that much condition placed on loving me. Uh, I'd prefer to be somewhere where people love me for who I am, regardless of what I've done, because I think that's what Christ would do. Even if they don't agree with it. Um, welcome people and love them. So later in this book, they then start talking about um, why we're attracted to the same sex. And they quote some some studies. They, they talk about biology and say there may be a biological component where they then compare it to gambling and drinking and drugs and once again in a very, very negative light. But then they talk about developmental experiences, and this is a very common thread in LDS conversion therapy, that there are a few reasons why someone develops that, and I'm going to be speaking at this from the perspective of male homosexuality, but you can kind of reverse this for female homosexuality. So the first one is the relationship with the father. Basically that the father has, the individual has a very negative relationship with their father. Um, they're not close to their father. Father was absent. They, um, father was really critical. They don't get along with dad. Then the relationship with the mother, that they have an overbearing mother who is overprotective and clingy to her son and keeps him close so that he can't connect with the father. Next one is gender identity, that they have some confusion in their gender identity and what it means to be a man. And their concept of masculinity is skewed. And they need to repair that in order to, that's the problem. You're just not connected with your masculinity. So with these things so far, in order to help somebody with this from this perspective, they need to repair the relationship with father. They need to work through their anger with their father. They need to distance themselves from their mother. They need to identify more with masculinity, which has a very narrow definition of masculinity. It's a very stereotypical that they need to be involved in sports, they need to go hunting, they need to do all these stereotypically manly things, abandon more feminine hobbies or things that they might have. The next um, thing they say is male emotional needs. So in addition to the father, 
and that bad relationship they've had they haven't had great relationships with same-sex peers and they've connected more with with women so they haven't had male emotional needs met which causes them to crave that and then they desire men sexually because they don't know how to get that any other way those male emotional needs if we can get those met by hanging out with the guys more then that's going to make those homosexual attractions disappear so which is why you'll see in a lot of like gay therapy there's a lot of groups where they have a lot of like male bonding and the idea is that if we can bond in on sexual ways more have deeper emotional connections with other men then we won't have a desire to be sexual with men the next reason that they they cite is self-worth so a lot of this is not feeling enough that you see other men as better than and so with this it is you need to be able to see yourself on the same level and not inferior to other men and you're going to do that by trying to make yourself feel more more manly and to work through um, body shame that you might have maybe because you're small you're a shorter guy you've been insecure about yourself as a man and so the theory says that you then seek out sex with men because by having that man sexually I can somehow take some of his masculinity so I need to build up that masculinity and that self-worth within myself and then I won't need to get that from other men there are a lot of gay men who are very confident very stereotypically masculine that still are attracted to men it's a, a bogus theory and the last thing they cite as a reason the early sexual experiences uh, once again they they attribute a lot of sexual abuse to being gay once again not true that doesn't correlate is it possible that there are environmental factors that contribute to our sexual development sure could sexual abuse add to that i'm not going to say it can't but to say that that's the cause, and because that's the cause, we can change that, um, that's not been proven. So just in a nutshell, to give you kind of an idea of kind of the attitudes in LDS conversion therapy that still exists, that's kind of the attitude, is we have to kind of fix these problems. We need to abandon that homosexual attitude. So from that has sprung, there's lots of therapists who have become well-known because they're known for doing this. Um, one of those that practices in Provo, lots of bishops, LDS bishops send youth to him is a man named Jeff Robinson. Jeff Robinson, if you go to his website, theguardrail.com, kind of talks about um, what he does there, and I'll just read that to you. Jeffrey W. Robinson, PhD, is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in Provo, Utah, specializing in the treatment of individuals struggling, once again, he uses that word, struggling with homosexual problems or other compulsive sexual behaviors. His counseling often includes parents, spouses, and other family members of those struggling with sexual issues. Dr. Robinson received his doctoral degree in marriage and family therapy at Brigham Young University. His doctoral dissertation was an in-depth study of change in Latter-day Saint men who have successfully overcome homosexuality. He served for three years as a facilitator for the Provo affiliate of Evergreen International, which I'll talk about in just a second. In addition to being a frequent presenter at conferences, he has presented numerous workshops, firesides, and therapist training sessions in a variety of settings. Uh, Dr. Robinson served as a bishop of his ward and uh, Aspen, Utah stake. So, um, Jeff Robinson, um, I've met him once. It wasn't a pleasant experience. I, I'm not going to say he's not a nice man. I met him at a conference. I went up and talked to him. I felt he was pretty dismissive of me. 
but that's just just my perception. Perhaps he's a great guy. He was having a bad day. I don't know. But I do know lots and lots of people have gone to see uh, Jeff Robinson in order to overcome their homosexuality. Um, his theory is based on this idea. Anyone who's been to therapy with him knows the idea of the dragon and that he uh, talks about our, the homosexuality within us being a dragon and that it's there and we just need to walk away from the dragon. If we try to um, confront the dragon, it's going to kill us. So we just need to turn away and walk away from the dragon, meaning that it's not going to totally go away. So he, sa he says that he doesn't practice conversion therapy because he's not trying to make it go away, but he feels that he can diminish it by the person needs to walk away from it, which means moving away from anything homosexual. If you have any homosexual friends, you need to get rid of them. Um, even friends who maybe are LDS not wanting to act on their homosexuality, you need to avoid them. You need to avoid any kind of pornography, any kind of intimacy with, with a man, um, even non-sexual intimacy that we need to just pull away and basically just abandon that part of yourself and focus on being heterosexual. From the way I understand it, that's kind of in a nutshell his theory. I've had many, many clients who have come to see me after they've met with uh, Dr. Robinson. Um, I've had clients who met with him for eight plus years that after that time they still are just as gay as they were and they finally give up and they come to me saying I've decided that I want to be gay and I need help so I don't see that providing a lot of help and he oftentimes if someone says that that's the direction they're going he oftentimes will say that's outside of my scope you need to find a different therapist he won't work with men who are wanting to pursue healthy gay relationships so that's Jeff Robinson another big organization within the LDS church. He uh, is, um, Jeff Robinson talked about Evergreen, and Evergreen was a program that started, I think, in the 90s, and it kind of disappeared um, maybe about 10 years ago, probably less than 10 years ago, five or six years ago. Um, but it was an organization that was sponsored by the church um, in a lot of ways. Um, it was held on church property, their conferences and things, but it was very much a push for changing sexual orientation. They had groups that would meet in church buildings um, at their conferences. They'd have like Joseph Nicolosi. I attended one of these um, back in my trying to fix myself days and Joseph Nicolosi came and spoke, but it was very much that we can change this and we can fix this and that that's what needs to be done. Around, you know, 10 years ago or so, another organization kind of sprung up less therapy oriented, but still somewhat, but kind of more of a spiritual component that was called North Star International, which still exists, and they still have a conference, and it's kind of a um, support group and resources for um, LDS people who are gay but not wanting to act on their sexuality. And they actually merged with um, Evergreen. The church kind of abandoned Evergreen as they were getting a lot of pressure because Evergreen was a very much pushed conversion therapy. The church wanted to distance themselves from that, so they stopped outwardly supporting Evergreen, but still kind of in the background did. But eventually Evergreen merged with North Star, so that's where it is now. So through all this, there were two um, LDS men, main one being Rich Weiler and David Matheson, who um, started a an organization called uh, People Can Change. And 
people can change sponsored weekends, these therapy, therapeutic retreat weekends that would help people change. Obviously, the name of their program, People Can Change. I'm actually going to do a whole podcast on this program when I talk about my own experience. I was very much involved with People Can Change. I went to their weekends. I went and staffed some of their weekends, all in an attempt to try to change my my sexual orientation. People Can Change has changed their name to a Brothers on a Road Less Traveled is the new name. they trying to get away from the word change because they were getting a lot of pushback from that. They now claim that the word change doesn't mean changing sexual orientation, but changing behaviors or um, kind of changing as I work through just becoming a better person as I work through wounds and those kinds of things. But once again, those weekends focused heavily on relationship um, with father, that you had a bad relationship with your father, an overbearing relationship with your mother, and women, that you don't have great relationships with men, that you need to get more in touch with your masculinity, all the stuff that I just went over from that, that book, Resolving Homosexual Problems. And actually, David Matheson, who is was one of the founders of that, he is the well-known LDS therapist who has recently come out as gay. Um, had for a long time said that those attractions had changed or at least diminished and he's now pursuing gay relationships and kind of going back on a lot of what he has said in the past I really respect him that's a really hard thing to do he's gotten a lot of negative kickback from that and I, I feel for him because I do see David as being a victim of a lot of this attitude, trying to do what's right based on his religious upbringing. He was raised LDS, it's not okay to be gay. I fell into that. I actually, as a therapist early on in my career, I worked for David at his clinic, which is called um, the Center for Gender Wholeness. I worked for him. And he was actually before, several years before that, David was my therapist. And I'll talk more about that um, when I talk about my own journey through all this. In a nutshell, that is I'm going to kind of conclude this this first episode. I just wanted to kind of give you a uh, this first episode on uh, conversion therapy. I wanted to give you kind of a background of kind of where this came from, where it exists in the church, how we see it. Um, next time, I'm going to talk about my own experience in that and what that was like for me. Thank you for joining us today. I'm glad you're here. My name is Danny Caldwell. This is Rainbow Mormon Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by Blue Dot Session. The artwork that can be found on our Facebook page and on website is by Jamie Webb. Uh, you can find her uh, Instagram account in our um, the description of this episode. Uh, if you haven't done so, please like the podcast, give us a rating. I'd love feedback, love to hear from you. You can do that directly through the podcast, or you can do that through Facebook. You can find us at Rainbow Mormon uh, Podcast on Facebook, or on you can visit our website at rainbowmormon.org, or you can email me at rainbowmormon at gmail.com. Thanks for being here. Um, look forward to sharing more.